today comes from 2 Timothy, 3rd chapter 16 through 17. Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. I was thinking as we were singing that great old hymn just a minute or so ago about how um, somewhat Pollyanna the song seems. A lot of our songs and our hymns seem to do that, don't they? I was thinking this past week, a really good friend of mine, there was this great southern gospel singer, uh, this group called the McCameys, that a lot of people who follow Southern gospel music are very aware of, incredibly popular group. One of the things that made them really popular uh, was the, just the vibrance and the energy and the spirit that uh, was a part of their performances. They would say they never came to put on a show but to be a part of a service, part of a church service, and that's truly what it felt like. But the big song that this group was known for, probably more than any others, was a song called God on the Mountain. And we've sung the song here before. Uh, the God on the mountain is still God in the valley. When things go wrong, God makes them right. And the God of the good times is still God in the bad times. The God of the day is still God in the night. It's a great song. And it's a great lyric. And I want to believe that when things go wrong, God always makes them right but I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. And that's why we're doing this this morning, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of us just, instead of you sitting there and just listening to what we have to say about a topic or about a scripture or about a character or a story or an event, we wanted to just talk with you and just kind of hear what's on your mind and hear what's on your heart. We've already heard from some folks this morning. And it seemed like uh, one of the questions we were hearing a lot about was just in the climate and the things that are going on in the world today, where is God? Where is God in all the violence? Where is God in, in Gaza and in Israel? And where is God in Ukraine? And where is God in Africa? And where, I mean, there's so much turmoil going on around our world and everybody wants to know where is God? And honest to goodness, unless you know, I don't know what to tell you. I really don't. Except that I believe, we believe, and this is why we continue to gather here every Sunday morning. We believe that God is present in the middle of turmoil and in the middle of heartache and in the middle of pain and in the middle of loss. And most of the time we can't see evidence of it, but that doesn't mean that God is not there. Because often we don't see God's presence and the resolution, but God's presence is there in those corners and in those places where the people are. Maybe not necessarily where the event is happening for us to see be captured by a news camera. Sometimes it is, but more often than not, it's not. But we even, even on a personal level, though, I think we all ask, you know, where's God in the midst of this thing that's happened to me, in the midst of this devastation? And... Uh, I can only speak from experience, is that um, somehow, some way, I've gotten to the other side of any bad experience I've ever had. And um, I have to contribute that to uh, this power 
uh, of the holy that works through me, that works through the world, um, that somehow somebody sticks their hand out and pulls me to the other side. And I have to believe that God works that way in Gaza and in Israel and in Ukraine and in 500 Don Anna Drive. Amen. Amen. I like that. I'd say if we uh, ask for folks to share a testimony, there are many of you who could probably raise a hand or stand up and say, I've seen God do this thing in my life, and you can share that. In church I grew up in, we had what were called popcorn testimony services, mm -hmm. and that's where people would just stand that up. That meant the service was going to go really long. It sure did. <laughs> and boy, sometimes you heard some bizarre testimonies, too. Some really, really bizarre But sometimes ones. you heard some wonderful things. We did. We've had folks uh, actually send us some questions and things that we'll get to in just a moment. But we also know that some of you came prepared this morning, maybe with some questions. Now, you want to go ahead and put that preface out there before we start taking questions? We've had some that says, what does BUCC believe? And any of you who've been here for a while knows that any of us in this building believes lots of different things on any given day including Kenny and myself, depending on what we've learned and what our life experiences are. So when I answer a question, I am asking it from my perception of my faith, not as what BUCC believes. I just want to preface that, and Kenny feels the same way. Absolutely, and, and it even goes broader than that. Not just BUCC, but UCC altogether. We have a we have a friend who pastors a UCC congregation. He's trying to be secret. I know. I told him that I, if I was visiting a church, I'd find a corner and sit in it too. But I've already called him out now. Uh, uh, who pastors a UCC church and congregation in North Carolina, in Lexington, North Carolina. Uh, and we're delighted to have you with yes, us here this morning. But he will would probably echo what we're saying in that even among UCC churches and congregations, there are lots and lots and lots of varying ideas and thoughts, uh, opinions, and settlements on all the variety of topics and subjects. So not only can we not speak for UCC, BUCC, but for UCC either. Come on in. We're casual today. <laughs> I mentioned to Pam this morning, she came in, I said, I don't see that collar this morning, and she said, we're going casual today. So. Um, I saw a video uh, yesterday on one of the social medias. It was a pastor who was standing up and he was preaching about being a part-time Christian. He said, you're either a full-time Christian or you're a part-time Christian. And he said, I know that because I called a member of my congregation this week and the way she answered the phone, she must have been off the clock. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted to know who the mm, 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 this was calling her so late. <laughs> she was off the clock. Off the clock. Do you want to? Do you want to maybe take some questions? Sure. Uh, right now, um, as a matter of fact, um, Barry, could you help us? Do you mind? I know we ask a lot of you, but There's for the sake there. of the folks who are watching online, we want to make sure they can hear the questions. And oh, there you go, Brenda. Would you mind handing that to Barry? And will who who has a question that wants to get? A, there you go, right behind you there. Uh, hand that microphone to Bob. Uh, my understanding of, uh, uh, of Christianity in the, New, in the New Testament is that it's a new covenant that what Christ brought to, to teach us and, and that we need to go by. And uh, the question or the problem I've, I've got is that some people in our Christian community, they will pick and choose whether it's New Testament or Old Testament, whatever fits their needs. And I, for me, the thing is that I, 
I believe, and you have to say if I'm wrong or whatever, that you know we are supposed to follow Christ's teachings and 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 love thy neighbor and and you know make peace not war and all that. Uh, but am I wrong that you know that they if people want to talk about prosperity they go back to some verses in the Old Testament or whatever, and then Christ says you know leave the wealth give it away or what it so am, am i thinking wrong or do i is it should we we go by the, the new covenant that, that christ has given us you know uh or do the picking and juice i don't know that's all i got i'll answer from my perspective i probably pick and choose too bob what what I, uh, I think we all do uh, to a degree. I think our call as people who proclaim to be Christians is to follow the teachings of Jesus. And the best I've been able to boil that down to is love yourself, love God, love neighbor. And for me, if I had to pick one scripture that held truth for me, you know, if I was gonna pick one thing, it's God is love. And if God is love, that is the litmus test. But I pick and choose too, and my pick and choose God is love. So. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about what other people do, but uh, I'd like to jump in. No, I think uh, you're exactly right. And I think, Bob, anyone who tells you that they don't pick and choose scriptures and verses that would support what they believe, I think that's what most, that's probably what nearly all of us do. We, we are accused of this <laughs> sometimes of picking and choosing the scriptures and the words that support what we believe. I mean, do you ever run across a scripture you sure as hell don't want to preach? I sure do. <laughs> I do, and I, find, I, I try to find the, the nuance in it. And you go back to original languages, and you go back to uh, the audience, and you go back to the culture, and you go back to the times, and you look at these things. And honestly, that's what our job is, right? Uh, as, as Bible teachers and preachers, our job is to go back and to find those things. But I absolutely, sometimes I'll come across a, a scripture that I don't know what to do with it. Uh, and I don't know how to, how to handle it in my own personal life. And that means I sure as heck, heck, don't know <laughs> how to encourage you to handle a scripture like that. But... It's exactly what Pam said. We believe that, and this was one of the questions actually that was asked to us either via email or online earlier this week. There was a question about atonement and what does the death of Jesus mean to us? Do we embrace it for salvation? Does it mean that if you believe in the death, the sacrifice, uh, the, the spilled blood of Jesus that you are born again and you are saved. And I know for most of us, that's the tradition uh, and the church history that we have. We believe that Jesus is as much an example for life, is more an example for our lives than he is for our death. And we believe that Jesus, Jesus arrived on the scene to speak to injustices and to speak to abuses and to speak to violence that was mostly uh, attributed to and led by uh, religions and faith and religious teachers and political leaders. And that's why we embrace You hear us talk a whole lot about justice 
here at BUCC, and that's because we believe that was Jesus' central message and his central teaching. And no, you're not wrong. Um, you know, a lot of times, um, as being that uh, you're gay or lesbian, whatever it's called, you call yourself, um, a lot of times people uh, tell you that you're going straight to hell for loving who you love. Um, what, is the, what does the Bible say about that? You want to speak to it first or you want me to? Here's what I'm going to, I'll, 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 I'm trying to decide how far I want to go with this. <laughs> all the way. Go all the way. <laughs> when I read scripture, I read it through different lenses. And, um, and sometimes I go back to the original language. We've got to remember that our scripture was written mainly by a bunch of white, not white, they were probably not white, they were probably, probably dark-skinned, um, patriarchal in a society where women were considered less than property. Um, and the Bible doesn't speak to same-sex relationships so much, but if you read it through a lens of liberation, and if you read it through a lens of God's love, you can't tell me that there wasn't spe something special going on with Ruth and Naomi when you read that story. And when you translate from the original Hebrew text, Jonathan and David loved each other. And that word used for love there is not like, I like you, you're my friend. It meant something more. Um, so if I hold my tenet as God is love, then God is love to everybody. God created all of us in the image of the divine. Therefore, I believe God must be a little gay, straight, trans, uh, gender fluid, whatever. You know, I mean, that's just my own belief. Go ahead. The Bible speaks a lot to violence, especially Jesus. Jesus spoke a lot to violence. When, when the Bible, I've come to understand that when the Bible speaks to homosexuality, which really wasn't even... A thing. The word didn't exist. The sin didn't exist. What did exist was sexual violence. Yes. And when in the scriptures, probably almost all of the time, and I know that sounds nuanced because somebody's going to come back and say, well, when is it not the case? But when the Bible speaks uh, about punishment or the sin for homosexuality or same-sex uh, sexual activity, it's talking about sexual violence. It's talking about domination. It's talking about people with power, people with control, people who were stronger, who were dominating weaker people, uh, smaller people, uh, people with not as much power. And what some folks now call a sexual perversion back then was actually just the sin of domination, of uh, men who would try to dominate weaker men and the way they showed their dominance was by, frankly, penetrating them. And that, when you look at it in that context and when you understand it in that context and you realize that in the scripture, when the Bible is speaking to homosexuality, it's talking about sexual violence and not love. Uh, it's not talking about relationship. 
It's not talking about care and love and concern that, that partners have for one another. It's talking about the violent aspect of sexual activity. And truth is, it's not just about homosexuality. It's about any kind of domination. It's about any kind of sexual domination, uh, whether it's same sex or not. And, and we believe that's what the Bible is speaking to. And um, it's a fairly, fairly recent thing that homosexuality or same sex uh, activity, I don't want to, I even hate to call it activity. I'll even say same sex relationships have been condemned by religion and the church. And there's a great, great new film, uh, and I think maybe even a companion book that's out now that's in some limited markets. It's called 1846 or something like that. Maybe somebody can look that up. Uh, but it actually goes back uh, and it looks at when the church first started teaching and preaching against homosexuality and how it became the culture of, uh, of many in the, in the church. Mostly, of course, in the evangelical or in the fundamentalist churches. But I've got all kinds of thoughts and opinions on that that probably have nothing to do with the Bible, but more to do with my feelings. And oh, I can't, Solomon and Gomorrah. Oh, what, can we talk more about, because a Solomon lot of times, Gomorrah? yeah, a lot of times parents use that against um, their children to say, well, this is why you're going to hell. Sure. What does the Bible say the sin of Sodom was? Pride. What else? Not loving Lack the of hospitality. Lack of hospitality, lack of care, lack of concern, uh, lack of receiving, lack of compassion, all of those things. The Bible explicitly says the sin of Sodom was those things. The Bible never, unless somebody can just prove me wrong, and I've gone back, I've looked at languages, and I've listened to Bible teachers on both sides of the issue, and no one can find a place where the Bible says anything more explicit about the sin of Sodom than the sin of Sodom was the lack of compassion and hospitality and love and care and receiving. That was the sin of Sodom. Now, it doesn't support the argument that a lot of folks, a lot of religious folks, a lot of people I know and love uh, still believe. As a matter of fact, just this past week, I got a text message from a family member of mine who started with, I love you, but, <laughs> uh, and we get those often. And I, from somebody who was uh, involved in the gospel music world for a lot, a lot of years, I still routinely, it's rare that a week goes by that I don't hear from someone who just discovered that Kenny was gay and they feel like they need to share all the scriptures with me as though I've never read. And, and, uh, and the things you get are not nice. I'm glad I don't see all of them. Right, yeah, and we honestly, we get some of them here too at mm -hmm. the church, uh, and uh, we just kind of choose the ones that we want to address and the ones that we don't. But, you know, I heard from someone this week who just told me that I was a child of Sodom. Uh, and, uh, Sometimes I respond to those and sometimes I don't, but because this was a family member, I did respond. And I just responded with that question, so tell me what does the Bible say was the sin of Sodom? And I haven't heard back from them. Is there a particular Bible verse whenever we come across uh, someone that says, you know, we're going to hell? And I'm just like, well, I'm not going to hell because, you know, I love, I don't hate. But is there something that we can refer to to give to people or just continue on saying? God is love, and leave it alone. 
I wish there was. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe somebody else here has. Feel free if you all have something to add to this. But I wish there was a, a verse that we could point to. But the truth is, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure that they would receive it in the spirit that we want to give it. You know, um, we can say God is love. <clears throat> and they'll say, of course, God is love. But God is also judgment. You know, we can say, yeah, but God loves. And they could say, yeah, but God also judges. It depends on the theolo theological worldview that they grew up with. And I'm not gay, but what I have heard people say is, you know, what's at stake is they believe you're going to go to hell. And so they're fighting for your love, you know, and your life. Um, and there's not a whole lot you can do. You have to let God do that work. And sometimes that takes a long time and sometimes it never happens. And truth is, you know your heart. Oh, yes. And God knows your heart. Yes. And that's what it always comes down to. I just have a lot of friends that struggle, you know, with their parents just constantly telling them, you know, I was one of the lucky ones that, not lucky, but blessed that when I came to my mom and explained to her what was going on, she said, I'll love you no matter what but there's not always that case. And I'm just trying to be able to help more people to understand that just because who you love does not mean that you're going to hell. Yeah. I often, and then you find a substitute, okay? Mm -hmm. You find a family that will love you regardless of who or what you are. Uh, you will find people who will affirm you, who will celebrate you. I remember Marsha used to say, you know, when you look for a church, if you're same sex, you should uh, look for a church that will celebrate your marriage, that will baptize your children, and that will celebrate when you go home. And uh, that would be my advice I give anybody. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I hear from folks sometimes, especially here in town, who we, we would never tell anybody you shouldn't go to a certain church. You shouldn't go to church because there are a lot of beautiful, wonderful congregations and churches here in Lexington that will love you, love you, love you. But it's just like Pam said when she, when she quoted Marsha. Marsha has always said, there are a lot of places that'll love you and they'll tell you they love you as you are, but you ask them to bless your marriage or to baptize your children. You're in a same-sex relationship and their response will tell you how far that welcome goes. Uh, and I have a really good friend who I've quoted here and at BUCC often, a guy named Stan Mitchell, who started a church in Nashville two or three decades ago. It exploded, it blossomed, it became the church to go to in Nashville, Tennessee. All the big country artists and everybody went there and it was just exploding and vibrant and alive and everybody wanted to be there. Uh, and then his uh, worship leader asked Stan if he would uh, officiate he and his partner's uh, wedding and Stan said I waited out and I thought man there's a lot at stake here and so I told him no I wouldn't do it and the worship leader continued right on he continued in his work there in the church until one Sunday he just approached Stan and he said I feel like um, this church's love has met its limits for me and Stan said it was a slap in the face to me and it was one that I deserved. And he said, I toiled and toiled. And I finally reached back out to uh, my worship leader and I said, I would be honored uh, to bless your wedding and to officiate your ceremony. And he did. It became front page news on the newspapers in Nashville. <clears throat> the church split, not even down the middle, about 75% of the congregation said, no, thank you, and left. Uh, 
and Stan continued in what he felt was right. Today, um, Josh Scott pastors that church, and many of you know Josh because he was here with us back in November, uh, and that church is still vibrant and alive, but not nearly what it was back then. But Stan said, I had to uh, settle within my heart how far my love and my support and my welcome was going to be. And sometimes there's a cost to that. So we have mentioned multiple times so far today about going back to the old language. Um, and I know a little bit about this because of some of the mistranslations that have been either purposeful or accidental, whatever. Um, how do you guys address those mistranslations and that those misconceptions that have come with those mistranslations over the last couple of weeks, over you know sermons? For me, I uh, I read all of the translations when I'm studying the scripture, and I think about the people that I'm going to be preaching to and what language will best address that people will hear and not tune out. Um, you also have to know who wrote, who translated. Um, so I hold all of those in tension. Um, I typically preach from either the Message or the Common English Bible because I think that's the easiest for people to understand. If I'm doing a theological study, I usually go to the NRSV, um, usually something with a little footnote in it. And there are times I'll go to a lexicon and look up an original word so that I can have a better understanding. You know, I, <clears throat> I don't think there is a translation. That, oh, let me back up. There is no such thing as a true, honest translation we'll of scripture and, and biblical text. Partly because I really am convinced that we don't even have all the biblical text that there's a lot of context that we've never seen or we don't even know exists. It may be buried somewhere. It, it may be, I saw somewhere in the news this week where there was a, an ancient Hindu temple somewhere that had hundreds of thousands of ancient writings in them and many of them date back to actual time of when Jesus was walking the earth. And, and of course the years after. And so there's probably lots and lots of context there that we've never seen and we never know. But I, I also firmly believe that in every single version or translation of the scripture, opinions are inserted. Mm -hmm. Modern thought is inserted. That's, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that we we have to struggle when, when someone comes to us with a challenge of, of uh, you know, how seriously we take the scripture. And I take the scripture seriously. I just don't depend on it entirely. And I know that just absolutely, there, I, I can think of a hundred people right now in my mind who will say, oh my God, Kenny's going to hell for sure. Um, because I know people who worship the Bible as much as they worship God. They believe that the Bible is the complete, full, and final authority in its current version. And by that, they mean the King James version as the final, thorough version. And, but when you ask them or when you present them with some history about the King James 
translation of the King James Version of the Bible, they will deny it up and down. They will, you know, when, when you tell them about, uh, you know, King James and his own sexual proclivities, uh, which were very, very, very well known <laughs> then and there, uh, the, th the same things that they were telling me I would go to hell for, King James himself was known to practice, and you present that to them, and it, to them it tarnishes the authenticity of the King James Bible, so they will deny it outright. They just deny it outright. But I believe that every translation of the Scripture probably has uh, some opinion and some translation that is shaped and molded by uh, views of the day or culture of the day. But I also know, too, that every translation of the Bible has its own support base. Uh, and, you know, whether it's the United Methodist Church or the UCC or uh, the Presbyterian or Catholic or anybody else, every institution, every Bible college has its own Bible uh, theologians and, and Bible teachers who probably have a dozen different thoughts on the same scripture, and every one of them will claim it's based on authority. I think. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I want to mention that we have great regard for the Bible as a historic and sacred text. But there's so much that's not there. And there's a lot that is there that is so, was so culturally relevant then that is not culturally relevant now. That doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. What it means is it gives us some historical context for the scriptures that we're reading. It, for me, it, scripture is the recorded witness of my ancient ancestors, recording their experience of what we call God and how God moves into their lives, their experience of trying to explain where God is in the midst of whatever's happening. Um, and so I usually hit scripture that way, looking at the experience of what life may have been like and okay, where does this um, experience hit us today in modern world? So I tend to go to the experience and then where was God in the text, so. Yeah, that's good. And not even all the writers agreed. And I believe scripture is still being written. I mean, we don't, we don't classify it as holy scripture. One or two of your sermons may have been scriptural-like. It speaks to us on a spirit level. And I think many of our theologians today and many of our contemporary writers speak spiritual language about who and what God is. So I, don't th I think scripture is living. It continues to grow. It's just not canonized. And thank you for mentioning that because it actually speaks to one of Sylvia's questions uh, that uh, she sent asking us about. Um, uh, let me let and me Sylvia, <laughs> you've been hiding. <laughs> you asked some good questions. She sent us some great, great questions this week. And, and one of them was about, uh, she says that, uh, and, and I think you're, you're correct because you asked if you were correct in, in this understanding is that BUCC sees the world through the incarnational worldviews lens. That means that, um, like you just said a minute ago, incarnation is ongoing. It continues. Um, God's intention, God's physical presence in our world did not end 
when Jesus stepped off the plane, you know, when Jesus was no longer walking the earth. The incarnation continues, and I love the way you phrased that, and I love the way you said that, because it does continue, and she said that it happens every time we extend genuine love, kindness, and help to others. And I love, love, love that, because that's exactly what we believe. Uh, I had a couple of other folks ask about where's BUCC stand on hell? Do you want to take that one? I ain't going. <laughs> I can only speak about what I believe, and I could care less if there is a hell or a heaven. Me being uh, part of the Christian community, I believe hell is experienced here on earth in many fashions. Um, I think heaven is experienced in fragments of moments. And if I get to the other side and there is something between this limit and that limit, well, that's a cherry on top of my life. I'm part of the Christian community because it makes my life richer. It gives me something to hold on to. And whether there is a literal heaven, I do not believe in a literal hell regardless. Because in my understanding of who and what I believe God to be, God would always choose us. I agree with that. Yeah, I, Will we I, get any emails on that one? Uh, oh, we'll get lots of emails after today. No, I, I believe that entirely. Um, I think a lot of us have had the experience of... Fear us, factor God. A fear factor God. We've been dangled over hell uh, for so long in our lives, and we've been threatened with it. I'm still threatened with it. We're still threatened with it. You all may hear from folks, too. But I hear often that, that I'm going to hell. Um, you might. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm, I'm with you, Pam. I'm, I'm convinced, and um, a great... A great uh, spiritual leader, a uh, guy named Carlton Pearson, some of you may mm -hmm. know about. Um, he was another one of those pastors who pastored this incredibly dynamic church out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was a part of the Oral Roberts University team out there, and uh, he traveled around the country and was a part of these big arena crusades, you know, with all these big-time preachers and stuff like that. And... He came to a place in his spiritual walk where he just could not justify. He couldn't find a place where the scripture um, finally addressed it and spoke to it, and he couldn't find a way in his own life and existence to justify the existence of hell. He didn't understand what the point of it was, except and unless to coerce us and frighten us into a relationship with God. And that's not even a good God. That's a brutal God who gets some sort of satisfaction out of sentencing all of us. If we are God's creation, if we are God's creation, and we believe we are, why would God create us just to torment and torture us for all of eternity and all of existence? Now that may, some of you have maybe never thought about the question, but I think it's an important one. And it's really okay if you do believe that there is one. We leave room for that. Yeah, we leave room, we leave for, room for that. I was uh, with a man and a woman and their children 
when uh, we were going, uh, I think, towards Louisville for some uh, retreat or something. I, I can't remember. But uh, the woman said, and of course we were talking about everything, you know, and uh, she said it helped her a lot when she began to see uh, the Holy Spirit as being the feminine uh, of the deity and that represents, and you bring that up in some places and they just would, wouldn't be able to handle it, you know, in, in, in fundamentalist churches, whether they say it or not, they believe that women are inferior, you know. And anyway, I thought that was a good way to kind of explain the role of the Holy Spirit. You know, we just go, well, who is he? Who is she? What, what's that all about? We don't know. And uh, that's just a long time ago, but it, it definitely stayed in my mind, you know, that, that women are a part of the deity. I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, we talked a minute ago about how the scripture, the Bible, a lot of those scriptures are informed by culture. Of course, we know that. That's why there, why there is so much male dominion in the scripture, um, because men were a stronger part of the culture then. Um, I love the thought of the Holy, one of the questions we got was, does BUCC believe in the Trinity? Uh, and I do, but maybe not the way we've always thought of the Trinity uh, to be. And I love the thought of the, the Holy Spirit being uh, a more feminine spirit. There are some people that might be uncomfortable with that, and that might be because they've not had good, strong, caring, loving, feminine uh, people in their lives. But I have, and I enjoy that and appreciate that. I know people who have had horrible, horrible uh, experiences with their parents. Uh, they were abused, they were neglected, they were mistreated, uh, they were beaten, and they have trouble. They can't imagine God as being a man because the man in their life was brutal and ugly and tormenting. I know others who were abused by their mother and they can't imagine anything holy being feminine, you know, whether it's the Holy Spirit or God or anything like that. And that's why I believe, we believe that it's a personal, you know, if you get joy and delight and comfort out of that feminine embrace, let God, let the Holy Spirit be that for you. If it's a male embrace, let God or the Holy Spirit be that for you. If it's neither or, let God or the Holy Spirit be that for you. That's my thought on it. Same. The same. Yeah. yeah. But I love that. I mean, I really, really love that. My, my best friend in my whole life was my mamaw. And there were lots of times as a little boy when, you know, I'd be at church and they'd be talking about the Holy Spirit, my mamaws, who came to my mind. When they talk about that comforting spirit. And, and part of Sylvia's question was she's noticed that we don't use he for God. Mm -hmm. And for me, using a pronoun for God puts God in a box. 
and God is so much bigger than any pronoun that we could use. Um, I prefer the divine it, whatever it is. Uh, I understand God to be more um, mystical, um, more like electrons in the air, atoms and quirks that, that move around. Uh, I'm panentheistic, meaning I believe God is in everything. Um, and so I, I think our language limits God. Absolutely, yeah. And it's a cultural, you know, uh, I think most everybody here knows that Mason, my husband, is indigenous, Native American, and a lot like Pam said, he, he has taught me to see the divine and to see God in absolutely everything. Now that's tough when you want to do something about that spider, spider scurrying across the floor, you know. Um, but has taught me to see God in, in everything. And that doesn't mean that, that that godly bird that's flying out there is going to be able to play a part in your destiny, but it means that God is a part of that creation uh, is what I believe it means. We're running up on time here real quick. Like, um, I mean, we have, we, we're, going, we're planning on doing this from time to time, just having these sit-downs, and we hope you're finding these helpful. And if you want. If, if, if you, you want. If, you're not, yeah. if they're not helpful, let us know. Yeah, and I'll tell Pam to stop. Um, <laughs> so this is, this is a, a great question. Stephen Elder was here earlier today, but he had to scoot out for work. He got a call and had to go to work, but he, he uh, sent us this question. He said, what is our church's view on abortion? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I know your views, and I think I know mine. I often think of myself, and here's a quote for you, I am very, very, very pro-life. That does not mean that I don't believe that a woman should be able to make the decisions that affect her body and her life more than they affect mine. I believe personally, and again, we're not speaking for BUCC, we're not speaking for UCC, but me personally, I believe that uh, the body that is carrying, uh, that is carrying that child, I believe that body is the one best suited to make the decision for what's right for them. And I don't, I, I have real concerns I can understand a church preaching and teaching against abortion. I have real, real issues with a government that wants to mandate what can and can't be done. It's, in my mind, it's just incredible overreach. It's incredible intrusion. And we've seen how dangerous that can be. I'm pro-life because I would love that there never, ever, ever needed to be a circumstance that anyone would have to make that decision, would ever have to make that incredibly hard and difficult decision. But until that circumstance, until we reach that utopia, I don't think we have a, I don't think we have a choice. I'm pro-life because I believe that not only should we be uh, encouraging life, but we should be supporting life and doing everything we can to support that life and make it livable and loved and lovable, and that's my position on it. I'm gonna speak from, um, I guess, a heart place. 
uh, on a personal note, speaking personally, I believe life begins at the moment of conception. But I've done a lot of, this is my own belief. I would never, ever, ever not support a woman who needed to do something um, for the betterment of her life, for her health, uh, for a child who's been sexually molested and finds himself pre uh, pregnant. The most loving thing to do in those situations is to um, sometimes end that life. I think it depends on where you as an individual believe life starts. Um, and in the same tension, I don't believe in the death penalty either, ever. Um, but I can't ever say that a woman should not be able to make the best choice for her body in any given circumstance. Yeah. And if I was in a different circumstance, I might, I might push the envelope on what my own personal beliefs were. And that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? It comes down to the person. It comes down to who's facing the tough decision and the tough question. And our role and responsibility in that is to love them through it. Whatever decision they make is to hold them and embrace them and let them weep on our shoulders and just squeeze them in as tight as we can while they, uh, while they deal with it. And politically, I'm always going to go pro-choice. Yeah, just. I understand. I understand. The, Stephen's other question that Pam mentioned was he asked where, uh, where our church is on the death penalty. It's tough, but it's, it's I, I can't, to me, it's just not justifiable that we take a life. Uh, I know there are people that, I can think of people that I think they just do not deserve to live. I mean, it's hard to imagine some of the brutal atrocities that are committed in our world, and those people do not deserve to live. In my mind, it's a much greater punishment to them to lock them away uh, until the end. That's my thought on it. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the questions. Keep, uh, if you think of something along the way that you would like to talk to me and Pam about or some questions or things, go ahead and get those to us if you'd like, and we'll, we'll try to save them and hang on to them, and we'll do another. And we uh, have some that we'll need to save for the next time already. Yeah, we already have some. And, and you all let us know what you think, if it's something that you want us to continue doing. Uh, I promise you we're not being lazy. Uh, we just had a lot of questions come in along the way, and we feel like this was a good opportunity. I think nice this was harder. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have a script. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, let's, let's prepare for communion. Can we do that? Thanks for joining us for the Bluegrass United Church of Christ podcast. We'd love to have you join us for a service sometime. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 500 Don Anna Drive in Lexington, Kentucky. You can find us online at bluegrasschurch.org.